This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. Hello, good evening. I hope you're well enjoying this return to springtime weather. This is the Radio to Watch Show with me, Jonathan Ross, and this is Eddie Grant. Bit of uh, Eddie Grant to start the show there, and this, of course, is Eddie Warner. Uh, the track is shut up on the Progressive Percussions album, released way back in 1968. Okay, on the show this evening, uh, Ben Wheatley will be with us. He's a brilliant director, of course. Uh, Kill List was one of my favourites. He had High Rise out last year, and he's got a new film called Free Fire, which opens all over the UK uh, from tomorrow. Fairly low budget, but a uh, kind of high concept. I think it's going to be a big hit. Uh, it's great fun. It's kind of pulp cinema. You fill up my senses. Come fill me again. You've got to let a bit of John Denver into your life every now and then. That's Annie's song, of course, and the reason for playing that, over and above, that it's a sublime piece of uh, slightly cheesy uh, folk rock from the 70s. I guess it was 70s, maybe it was 60s. I think it was 70s. We'll find out in a minute. Anyway, because Ben Wheatley, uh, the esteemed British writer and director, is with us, and his new movie, Free Fire, opens all over the UK from tomorrow, and that song features somewhat in it. So uh, were you a, a Denver fan before this, or did you find this for the movie? Were you looking for something that was just right? I was a Denver fan before, and and I've always had a, a kind of policy that I kind of don't put music in the films I'm making unless I listen to it regularly. Right, right. Because I think it's mean. And, uh, and so know. that, well, that's interesting. But you must have discovered songs sometimes along the way and thought, okay, I might put this in the movie. But you haven't lived with it long enough to know whether you're going to love it forever yet. Yeah, I mean, so there, obviously there's there's things that break the rule. But I kind of when I'm putting a movie together, I make Spotify playlists and stuff, and so I listen to a lot of music for years, basically building up to it. So say something like, uh, there's another track that uh, do the boob which is the beginning of uh, Free Fire, which is something I'd found when doing research right. for the movie, which I was really excited was about. That, was that an instrumental? No, no, it's, it's a... Do the boo. It's a, yeah, no, it's a kind of a garage, uh, Boston garage band from the, the kind of... OK, uh, well, we should, we should try and find that, and we'll see if we can slot that in. If we can find that in the next few minutes, we'll put that in there. Uh, and do you listen to music when you're, when you're writing? Because you write with your partner sometimes, don't you? Or sometimes you just work straight from her screenplay? Well, Amy Jump... Um, who is the co-writer on this one, we have a kind of a odd working relationship in that it's not that thing of like two writers in a room with smoking jackets on, laughing at each other's jokes and finishing each other's sentences. Is that a thing, Ben? Do, the, do writers still wear smoking jackets? <laughs> I think they I mean, do. In my mind, they you do. You think they do? OK, well, I, I'm, I love that view of the world you have. I wish that were the case. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, yeah, what, what happens when we collaborate together is I write a script usually, when we're doing it together, I'll write a script and she will then just rewrite it. And okay. I don't have a conversation with her, she'll just take it away so, and redo it. So mm. when you say you write so you write the kind of beats, the kind of overarching storyline, and then she fleshes it out with more character, more dialogue, or because... No, I write a full script. So you write a full script? Yeah. Okay, and then she rewrites. Yeah. And how much change occurs in between the initial draft and her version? Well, it depends what the film is. So on um Kill List it was more like a dialogue change. Right. On Free Fire it was again it was more of a a, a, a a kind of calibrating it to make it funnier because the original script I wrote was really grim. Right, right. And she was, she read it and went, oh, no one's going to sit through this. It's just loads of people in agony. Her instinct was right. It was right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's completely, you know, that's why, you know, I, I because you can get in this tit-for-tat thing with rewriting where you, 
you know, you get your script, script back, it's been changed, you get furious, and then you delete all the things that have been changed and you write, <laughs> rewrite on top of it. And I've learned not to do that because their instincts are usually better. Well, also, I. the collaboration means that you do have, you know, a, a, fresh, a fresh mind at work on it and a fresh set of opinions and ideas that come in about tone and about... So therefore, you are, even if it's only the kind of narrow for two people, you broaden its appeal to that extent. And I guess that you have to be aware of that. There must be, I'm sure, something of a conflict that goes on within you between making the movie that you initially envisage and the movie that people will want to see. Well, I think it's that, that we, Amy and I have been writing together since we were teenagers. So I've kind of got over that kind of slightly childish need to have my final say you know and I, and I now I will totally bow to better writing every time you know it's not an ego thing it can't be and um and I, I find a lot of the time is because she edits as well on, on the films that we make it's, it's me not uh trying not to um uh, contaminate her vision too much you know because what usually happens say in the edit I'll be you know screaming and ranting and go oh it was meant to be like this and now you've changed it why yeah, yeah. and then you know two weeks later I'm like oh because you were right yeah, yeah. and if I can get that there's a lot less energy has to be expelled you know, I guess otherwise. to an extent you do just have to let it go though even if you don't feel it's right still because you get to a stage in the film I'm sure where once you've committed it to, to whatever you're filming it on you can't go back and change. I mean, sometimes with a big budget, you can do a, little, a big budget, you can do a little bit of reshoots, but ultimately you're stuck with it, and then you have to make it work as well as you can in the edit. So I guess that must be uh, a process that you learn. Do you get more comfortable with that the more films you make, or does that still sometimes irritate? It's the 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 scary thing about filmmaking is that uh, you know you go into it and you've got. At script stage, it could be the script could turn out really, really brilliantly when you film it. When you film it, you've got loads of opportunities all the time, and you're shooting loads of different angles, different types of performances. That's all brilliant. But then in the edit, when you get there, you finally there is only one performance, and there's only one shot, and there's only it. And it kind of has come down to that moment, and that's really, really scary because it had potential all the way up to that final choice. It had the potential to be anything, and then it just is that thing. And then know? the actor wounds it. <laughs> yeah, or the, or, the, or the editor ruins it, you know. It's like, uh, but you didn't answer my question earlier. Do you listen to music while you're writing, or do you need it to uh, be kind of more monastic? Um, <laughs> yeah, well, that's the other thing. Yeah, the writers going around in their robes, you know. Um, yeah, no, I, I uh, it depends. I tell you what, I listen to a lot is um, Lord of the Rings. So you listen to a book on tape. Or no, the soundtrack. The, the, the soundtrack. What, yeah. the Ralph Bakshi one or no, the no, new one? The new one, yeah. Okay. And I, and and it's it's because there's no there's no um, lyrics, and I find that stuff with lyrics in it is really confusing yeah. when you're writing. So was that was that Howard Shaw? I'm trying to remember. It who, was Howard Shaw. Was yeah, Howard yeah. Shaw. And it's quite rousing. So you'd be like going, oh, I can't be bothered. Oh. Yeah. And you go, dun, 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 and you go, oh, I feel a bit better. You're perked up. Yeah, um, I'm up the side of a mountain because now. Tarantino yeah. listens to a lot when he's writing, I believe. But he sometimes listens, I think, to the actual songs that appear in the movie. So I guess maybe yeah. that creates the mood for him as well. Yeah, I mean, I, we tried it on, on Free Fire. Um, Jeff Barrow and uh, Ben Salisbury did the music for it. And we, I, I talked to them really early on. And I said, I want to do this like Sergio Leone, where they, you, know, you, you get the music up front and then you play it in and see, and see what happens with that. So you played it in while you were shooting? Well, they, they composed all this music and it was brilliant. And then, then we all, were all on set, and I was editing on set as we were shooting, so it was coming straight off the cameras in, on this little edit bay, and I was doing it, and, it, and they came in, and we put some of that music over the top, and then we, went, we decided we didn't like it. Mm. So it, that's I hadn't considered that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. then their score is completely different from the test score that they did originally. Have you ever thrown the whole score away? Because Kubrick famously did that with 2001, of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, not really, because it's... It, well, I've tried to make a working process where the score... 
isn't like a fait accompli at the end of the process. It comes in really early. So we get demos in and they cut into the mo- into the movie and you try not to have temp music inside in the score because it's uh it's too destructive when it you know when when you've got this poor the the composer comes in with this um you know t- their temp version which is all done on 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 cheap synths yeah, or something on and, a phone and it sounds rubbish you know but you know it's going to you know it's going to be amazing because it's, it's fleshed out exactly mm. but um but it's just too painful and you get too attached to the rhythms of another movie if you put other people's music on then have to pull it out again but it's fascinating area because it's such a crucial part of the finished package isn't it the move oh, the sound music. is as important as the picture mm. you know sound design and music it's it's massive yeah we've we spent too long talking about music here i feel because of course really you're a director and primarily we're talking about the visual storytelling skill that you bring to it and, and in many ways you look at the new film free fire which i enjoyed very much by the way but it's a it's a such a, a kind of um remarkably simple conceit for a film would you, would you tell everyone what's at the heart of it um yeah it's it's basically two groups of um characters Come to a, a warehouse in the in the late seventies in uh, Massachusetts, somewhere in America, and they are doing a um, a gun deal. And they're one side's buying the guns, one selling. Um, but it's the the smaller characters on the periphery of the story have had some kind of a, um, a punch up in the bar. Basically, the guys who come to carry the boxes, um, and this spills up into this very tense situation, and then it all just kicks off. And so, and essentially, the whole thing, more or less. I mean, there's a tiny, tiny bit of exterior at the beginning, and then it's all inside this kind of dirty old Brooklyn or some part of New York. Is it Queens, Brooklyn? Where is it meant to be? It's it's kind of. I think it's somewhere near to Boston, but not near oh. enough for um, us to get in trouble with the accents being wrong. <laughs> in a village where that accent yeah. set actually exists. And so, and it takes place all inside this warehouse. So, uh, I imagine on the one hand, great budget wise, great. You, you're in one site every day. Uh, I imagine the reality of being in what would essentially be, I'm sure, was it cold when you were filming there? Was it no summer? Okay, so quite a nice place to yeah, work it was in. Nice, yeah. In that respect, but as a director, that's the challenge you set yourself. It's the classic. It's uh, what was the Lifeboat movie that Hitchcock made? Lifeboat. Uh, that would be the one. Uh, part of that one felt was almost like just an intellectual challenge. He posed himself, "Can I make a movie with interesting variety of shots in such a confined space?" And to an extent, you must have faced that challenge as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, the the way I looked at it was that. Um, that even though it's a big, it's, it's one space. It's actually, if you imagine it, it's lots of different sets, but they just don't have any walls, so or dividing walls. So you kind of ju- you 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 look at the space and you b- break it into sectors, and you imagine, you know, and that each of these sectors that they move through is designed in a different way, so it doesn't become vi- visually monotonous. I think if, if it had been in a, you know, white cube space yeah it would have been hideous it would have been hard work you know uh and uh you of course have to keep a sense of the geography of the place for the audience don't you because we need to know where people are in relation to one another and is that something that you do at the storyboard stage or can you actually if you've made a mistake and not that you would necessarily but can you can you save that at the edit can you put extra shots in just to show where someone is in relation to someone else um it was it was a big concern you know and so we uh it's very detailed in the script. Then I did a lot of storyboards for it. There was like about two thousand storyboards drawn for it. But even storyboards can, you know, help you out and and kind of be slightly seductive and wrong, you know. So you, um, so I thought I so then I built it in three D. So we built it um, using Minecraft. Oh, oh I, wow! So you actually went to video game technology, yeah, yeah, to make something which in a way feels a bit like a video game, well, not in terms of its character, but well, it is. You know, it's. I think that you know, there's loads of film references you can take from this movie, but there's certainly game references as well. You know, and I play a lot of Counter Strike, 
And so it's based. Oh, so is that CS2? Is that gets? Is that CSGO is the uh, CSGO. Yeah, yeah, it's the modern modern Counter Strike. Do you gamble on it? Because people gamble on Counter Strike, don't they? they I know actually... it's crazy. Yeah, I know. I, I don't understand that. Yeah, <laughs> on virtual gun, you know, stickers and all yeah, sorts on of teams as well. But I've been playing it f- for since the beginning. And I'm no better than I was when I started. <laughs> and now my son plays it and he's better than I am. Well, that's, that's your age, you know? Ben, because I'm in a similar boat. I'm a Titanfall 2 player and I'm on there and uh, occasionally I'll have a great match and I think, wow, I've really got... And then I'll get killed by people and you can hear them speaking and they're almost always six or seven years old. Yeah, yeah, it is. It, it's a horror. It's one of the circles of hell, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But this is what we've done. I'm going to put some music on. We'll maybe talk a bit more about Free Fire and also get to Ben Wheatley's uh, Buried Treasures after this. We're going to play Do the Boob, which was mentioned by him. But now the real kids, were the real kids I know of the real kids. Did they have any actual hits? I don't know. I just found this just randomly searching around and I found a little version of it on YouTube somewhere. Okay. And I was like, what's this? It's dirty. Yeah, the real kids do the boob. If uh, when the real kids wrote that, they assumed people would create a dance move, the boob, to go with it. I'm sure they did. I, mean, I think it was on the back of the single, wasn't it, with the steps? Did you do? It. Can you do the boob? Sadly, I can. I can do the moob. Unfortunately. <laughs> there you go. So let's get your buried treasure. We're going to start with music. Well, what song are you? You want me to listen to the fall? And this is something which I've avoided almost all my adult life. <laughs> I have. I've, I don't know why. I just haven't. What? How can you not like the fool? I had Marky Smith on the show once and he sang and he was terrific and yep. he was interesting and he was weird, but I've just never really got into them. So I mean, I got introduced to the fool by my um, schoolmate, Dominic Sutton, and he, he, said, he was very excited. I think we were about 14 or something. And he, and he got this album and he said, I've heard what the devil sounds like. <laughs> and I was like, what's that then? And he put it on and it was the fool. Enough of that, I feel, because that goes on for nine minutes. Uh, okay, thank you, uh, Marky Smith, and uh, whatever incarnation of the fall that was, Bremenacht. Um, and so, uh, I mean, it's not, I mean, it's kind of music which creates its own mood, I guess. Yeah. Um, but when do you, how often do you listen to it? Or we um, listen to it? Well, there's so much to choose from as well with the with the full. So, Thank heavens. Yeah, yeah. There's many thousands of albums. I've I've recently started <laughs> collecting them all, so I got bits and bobs of them. You know, mm-hmm. but yeah, I, I think it's a it's a it's a project for later life. Well, he's a unique individual. He absolutely is. Yeah, and I think you know, it, his his lyrics always make me laugh, and it's there's always something in it, and he's such a crotchety old fella. Yeah. And yeah. cross about everything. Well, always was, always will be. One yeah, hopes. which is yeah. good, I think. And you need someone to be moaning about everything, I think. Now we move into an area which I do have some knowledge and familiarity and you want to talk about the uh, the, the French comic book artist and, and occasional writer, Moebius. Yes. Yeah. Or I mean, Moebius, the, how do you pronounce it? How I do see, you... I go Mobius. Mobius, because it's like Mobius strip. Yeah, Mobius, yeah. yeah. But it's M-O... Uh, with an umlaut over the O, E B I U S. Yeah, I'd say Mobius, but I mean, I've, I'm I'm no expert on pronouncing. Let's anything. let's split the difference. Mobius, Mobius, Mobius. Yeah, okay. yeah, and, it, and it's the book, the the Long Tomorrow, and um, I didn't really know anything about him up until, uh, and I bought this book in. I remember, it, I think I got it in Forbidden Planet in the in the eighties or something like yeah. that. I probably bought it in Denmark Street, which was the the greatest Forbidden Planet ever. It was. I would agree with you on yeah, that. Absolutely, and um, and I looked through it and I was. 
I was just amazed. I'd never seen artwork like it. And and then I started looking at the pages, and this, particularly the story long tomorrow is the uh, the genesis. And I think really Scott says this himself, but it's the genesis for the look of Blade Runner. And it's such it's only it's only about I don't know twelve pages long that strip, um, and yet it's so massively influential. And it's written by Dan O'Bannon, who then went on to write. He was a great, a very prolific screenwriter in the seventies as well. Yeah, yeah, because he was involved in um, Total Recall as well, I think. But, but then it's uh, Night of the Living Dead as well that he wrote. Um, and uh, yeah, and every every frame of it is full of detail and in, in incredible design. And when, even down to the fact that when you look look in it, you can see, oh look, that's the Imperial probe droid from Empire Strikes Back. You know, and people have just been through this strip and just mined it yeah. for, for all sorts. Of, of course, now Mobius to give Mobius to give me his full name, Jean Girard. Yes, uh, and he was he did work uh, on many movies as well. Yes. I mean, he worked with uh, Alejandro Jodorowsky yes. on the design work for June, which never appeared, of yeah. course. And yeah. I think he did work. Did well, he, he did, did work on. Alien and Alien, he did. Work he on did. Tron. So the kind um, of spacesuits that you see in Alien, they were very much his design. Yeah. Of course, the other great designer is uh, Geiger on that film. Yeah, who yeah. Created the look of the animal. Itself. But that, the 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 Dune film is really important because that movie, um, he gathered all these artists and Dan O'Bannon worked on Dune as well. Um, and then when the film collapsed, Ridley and there, at one point from my reading of it, Ridley Scott was meant to be involved in doing Dune as well, and that didn't happen. And then he just scooped them all up and, and took them to do Alien. Yeah, which Hodorowsky is kind of furious about, of course. I'm, I'm no doubt. He didn't H- see that coming in the tarot. Hodorowsky's furious about everything. I'll tell you my Hodorowsky story. I spent a couple of weeks with Hodorowsky once. Was it an incredibly strange picture show? No, it was a show we did afterwards called One Week Only, but I went to Poland and I was with him in Poland briefly mm. and then in Paris, and then we had an argument in Paris and he refused to sign the release form for this documentary we made, so I furiously I queued up, queued up to see him while he was reading tarot cards yes. in a bar, sat down in front of him, and I signed his name on the release sheet in front of him. <laughs> it very nearly came to blows. But what a man. What a great talent. Yeah, or a visionary. You know, and when you see like Holy Mountain and rewatch that, yeah. um, I watched it recently, and it's like a playbook for all of advertising. It's mm. been, again, been pillaged. Yeah. By image makers well, all over a, the world. Well, a kind of a mystical uh, visual artist, a, a yeah. true genius. Santa Songa as well, of course, is an amazing yeah. film. Uh, Moebius, sadly, is no longer with us. Sean Girardi died about three years ago, I think, two or yeah, three years yeah. ago. Have you seen any of his non-genre stuff? Well, genre of a different sort, not sci-fi. Have you seen uh, Lieutenant Blueberry? Blueberry? Yes, I've, I've, look at, I've seen that stuff. and That's, that's that. a Western series, which, of course, in France, comic books or Le Bon Dessinée, they yeah. kind of they spill out. It's not just superhero and sci-fi, it's everything. Well, I, went, I was in... Um, uh, Rotterdam the other day and I kind of went into a comic shop there and uh, I was really amazed I mean I felt like a bit of a, a, a ignorant kind of swine for not understanding this but that you go into those comic shops and they're all the all the comics are massive size and they're all bound in hard books and they're all about every single subject under the sun except for people in spandex with the, their pants yeah, on top of their it's hard trousers. to find it's hard to find that that's in the weird section at the back for yeah weird yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they kind of so it's a, essentially it's like movies it's very much yeah, like yeah. cinema and the, and the shop was filled with young people and, and uh, of, of a 50 percent gender split wow so it wasn't like the you know the comic shops here which are not and, like and that. knowing Ben, I imagine he counted. I imagine that's a very specific fifty percent. It was definitely fifty percent. I was like, numbering. well, I was just astounded. You yeah, know, I was like, yeah. oh, brilliant! This is good, and it's healthy, and it's culture, and it's alive. And I didn't know about it, and I felt bad. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible. If you haven't ever any movies, sir, there's a, a, an awful lot of work out there. But the Long Tomorrow is a good place to start. Uh, the series that Hodorowsky wrote for him, the great Alejandro Hodorowsky, he wrote a long series for yes, him. Yes, Incal. Yeah, Incal, which is amazing as well, but yeah. a little bit kind of away with the fairies. Yeah, it's um, one to look at in, of an evening, d- sipping a, 
um, a chamomile tea. And Mervis's own series, The Airtight Garage of Joey Cornelius, yes. which is in turn inspired by the work of Michael Moorcock, of course, yes. is a- also heavily recommended. And uh, which is eye-wateringly expensive still. But I it, think you can. Ju- really? I think they're reissuing it at the moment, but yeah. See, man, I bought all these first time out. Yeah, well, they got held up. They got some rights thing happened, and yeah. then some of these books are like, I think I paid, I re-bought The Long Tomorrow the other day, and it cost me about 60 quid. But yeah. he really is, he really was one of the finest uh, illustrators working in the in the kind of graphic storytelling form. I mean, he really was just an exceptional talent, really remarkable. Okay, let's finally just go back to film again, and you're going to recommend one, which people will have heard of, of course, but uh, maybe uh, maybe you would say doesn't get the attention or the uh, the kudos that it deserves. Terry Gillum's Brazil. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was a totally formative movie. I saw, um, I remember seeing a trailer for it when I was a kid, and uh, and the certification of it meant that I was never, I wasn't going to be, be able to see it. And of, you know, not to be a sad old man talking about the old old days, but it was at that point. What if it didn't come out? If you missed it in the cinema, you know, you weren't going to see it for you years. Did, years, yeah. you had to wait for some... It came out in a VHS on a dodgy corner shop and then yeah. you had to try and get it then. And, it and then the only way that you could get close to a movie that you hadn't seen was to buy magazines about it or a novelisation, you yeah. know. I remember yeah. reading the novel for Empire Strikes Back because I didn't get to go and see it, <laughs> and you know. The novel's better, probably. Well, it's pretty, it's, it's pretty good. It's, it's, quite, it's quite exciting. That's the know. best Star Wars movie ever made, of course. Well, yeah, I got I got to work with Peter Shashitsky the other day, the DOP from it, and, um, yeah, everyone was like, oh, my God. Talk to him about Star Wars, go on. Yeah. And I was like, no, I'll talk to him about it. Um, uh, his first film was It Happened Here. Have you seen that one? I have seen that one. Yeah. yeah. It's a and great that, film. Yeah, yeah. So I brought that in. Sign that, Peter. But that's just perverse of you. I did the same thing <laughs> when I met, um, uh, now who was it? Who I'm trying to remember the name. Who wrote Clockwork Orange? Burgess. Burgess. I interviewed yeah. Andy Burgess and I thought, you know what? I'm not going to do, I'm not going to bring Clockwork Orange in. I'm going to bring in some obscure novel, which I did and he signed it for me. And there was a moment where I thought, okay, he respects me. And then after I'm thinking, why didn't I get in the sun clock? I'm an idiot. <laughs> I've doubled the value of I this book. I shot myself in the foot. <laughs> OK, well, uh, and Gilliam's Brazil, of course, can be seen. It is an amazing piece of work of imagination, but also it's strange that he, you know, it's, it's remarkable he managed to get that made. And, of course, only just finished it, of course, because there were lots yeah. of problems in the production of that. Yeah, there was a massive um, kind of fight uh, in the film, and it's got the, one of the bleakest endings of all time. And I can imagine what the, the studio executives spitting out their coffee when they watch that. And yeah. going, oh, we can't put this out. You it's, know? it's not a happy watch in actual fact, but it's a, yeah. it's the you know it's probably a masterpiece of dystopian cinema. Yeah, I watched it with my son the other day, who's thirteen, and he'd never seen a film with a proper bad ending before. Yeah, and he was like, "No, oh God, no!" Oh, no, it's not. It's not. Yeah. It's not a good thing to do to your kids, Ben. <laughs> My wife still won't let the kids watch Edward Scissorhands. She just won't let them watch it. Oh, fair enough. Or well, Coraline is the one. Coraline's bad as well. I, yeah. I stupidly forgot how sweet Charity ended, and I gathered them all around for a family afternoon, and my, my oldest daughter, I don't think, has forgiven me. <laughs> I can only remember my, my son squeezing my hand and looking me in the eyes and going, never, never take me to Coraline again. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, we'll say goodbye to Ben Wheatley. Ben, thanks so much for being here. It's always a pleasure. I always look forward with great excitement to your films. Free Fire was uh, uh, such an enjoyable experience. I suspect it will be a huge movie. I loved it. I hope you will as well. It's all over the UK for tomorrow. Free Fire, uh, it's very much... It's like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang without the Kiss Kiss. It's just Bang 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 Bang. Bang 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 Bang. But great characters, <laughs> great setting, and uh, some great performances we should mention. Killian Murphy is terrific in it, as yes. is Brie Larson, of yes. course. And what's the name of the guy who plays the handsome, the good-looking guy? Army Hammer. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's great fun. Uh, ben, great to have you here. Thanks for coming in. Thank you.
OK, it's time now for Radio 2 Book Club Fact Not Fiction, and this week it's a fascinating book and a very readable book, I'm pleased to say. Uh, it's called The Kingdom of Women, and I have the author, Chu Wai Hong, with me in the studio now. Wai Hong, uh, welcome and thank you for joining me. Thank you so much. OK, so now a fascinating book, and, um, uh, and of course it's a true story. It's an account of a, a period in your life um, and the kingdom of women in your time with them. Tell me about uh, how you discovered this and what you're doing. You were a lawyer, I believe, working in Singapore, weren't you? Yes, I was a fund management lawyer. So that's a pretty high-pressure job, I imagine. Very, very. So much so that I grew tired of it. What sort of hours were you working? Um, 9.30 in the morning to midnight, every night. So I guess you're talking about funds that you'd be dealing with those in Asia and then here in the UK and then in America. Absolutely so right. Yeah. So, yeah. so I'm imagining, even though uh, I suspect it was fairly lucrative and well paid, at the same time, draining a view of your energies and your personal life. You yeah. can't have had much of a personal no, life. No, and including the weekends, I might add. You know, I had to work. So I was quite ready to give it up when I did. What was, then, the, what was the trigger? Was there a moment where you thought, OK, this is, I've had it with this life? Uh, it was a car accident a few months until I made the decision. Uh, I wasn't hurt in the end, you know, but there was a big bus that, uh, that ran a red light and crashed into me. And I thought, well, life is too short, yeah. you know, really. Yeah, especially to work those hours and then, yeah. OK, it could be taken away any second. So you decided right. to leave that, that world. And it's interesting in terms of the story, and you, you cover this in the book in some depth, of course, is that you're in a very male-dominated field, especially back then and even today, I suspect, very much a kind of a, a boys' club yes. of sorts. So, so for you to survive and to rise as high as you did as a woman, already you must have encountered a lot of barriers and you must have felt somewhat excluded, I imagine. Yes, I think, um, you know, I think as a woman in high-powered jobs, I think you always feel like an outsider. But there is an inner man in me, you know. I mean, <laughs> or at least we learn to navigate that. Yeah. You know what I mean? So you found to, a way of dealing with them on their terms? Yes. Uh, yes. And how was that, though? Did you, were there kind of like, uh, were you copying their behaviour or were you just instinctively finding a way to pass as one of the boys? Well, I wouldn't even go as far as that. But, you know, you, you sort of know the language they they listen to. And sometimes you have to stand your ground. And, um, yeah, but I wouldn't say I'm one of the boys, but I knew how to sort of play the boys' game mm. uh, most of the time, but failing in, at other times, you know. And so you leave your job, but you didn't have a clear idea specifically of what you wanted to do or where you wanted to go? Uh, except to do the grand tour of China. And I certainly didn't start out thinking I'll write a book, you know. I just explored China, which is like my motherland, I suppose. And at least traditionally, my family came from there. So you your know. father came from China? No, my, oh, yes, my grandfather oh, right. and father, actually. My mum was not born there. Was She was born in Singapore. But, uh, you know, we have roots, cultural roots anyway. So that was the first thing I did. I, I went to find my grandfather's village. Uh, and my belief is, before we get on to, to the villages you discovered, mm -hmm. is that China still is, to a large extent, I believe, a very patriarchal society. In fact, I would say in some ways more patriarchal than your society. Right. You know, Chinese patriarchy is famous or infamous uh, for its patriarchal practices. And so to find... The village you did uh, is, in China is in, remarkable. Now, yeah. you, had you heard of? Now, can you? Uh, no, I've never heard of it. I was traveling in China, and then I read about a mountain goddess festival about to take place in some mountain in Yunnan province in the southwest, and I thought a goddess festival. I've never attended any 
in my life. So I thought, okay, I'm going to jump on the next plane and get there. You know, and I'm glad I did. That was the beginning of my adventure. And the people you met there, the uh, the uh, the tribe itself, is it called the Mo- Mosuo? Yes. The Mosuo tribe. Now, and had you heard of them before you arrived? No. Okay. No. Although, I mean, there are documentaries now on them that you can Google, but I've never heard of them. And I went just on a lark. And it was quite a journey, wasn't it? It took you a long while to get there. Oh, yes. Uh, torches, car journey, like over seven hours uh, into the mountains, you know. And in those days when I went, the roads weren't that good. You know, yeah. potholes, rock falls. So you had to really want to get there to get there. Well, just because I made up my mind yeah. to do it. And so what did you find? Because they're, they're, they are, and you describe this in the book, and I'm not quite sure, perhaps you can uh, clarify the distinction for me, that it's a matriarchal society and a matrilineal yes. society. Now, what's the uh, difference? Two aspects. The matrilineal part is how you count... Uh, people as your relatives. And a matrilineal society then looks at the female bloodline. Okay, I mean, you and I look at our male bloodline to to decide who are our family members. Well, on the flip side, in, in a matrilineal society, it's only those who are related to the bloodline of the grandmother or the mother. And and you count as family. Otherwise, you are not family. And what do the others count as? Uh, anything at all? Outsiders. Or they just, wow. Lovers, whatever, <laughs> you know. And speaking of lovers, there's not the conventional, certainly not our view of a long-term relationship in that tribe. Right. I mean, in the traditional Mosul world, uh, there's no marriage because they don't need a man and a woman to form a nuclear family. Hmm. Family is grandma's family, her daughters and sons, and the children of only her daughters, because only her daughters can pass the female bloodline down. So if the son has children, they go and belong, so to speak, to they, the mother's family that, that he creates the children with? Well, he, the, the son goes and visits his lover in another home, another matrilineal bloodline, right? And if, if his lover becomes pregnant... He has no claim to that child because that child would belong to his lover's family, <laughs> you see. Yeah. So he's a night visitor at best. A night visitor is a great way of putting it. I know, <laughs> and he can be a repeated night visitor or oh, a one-time night. And, can, night. and can the night visitor make visits to different houses? Oh, sometimes on the same night. I, I'm surprised they're not overflowing with visitors. Uh, what, a, what a society. But I guess this would kind of only work, this kind of society. I can see it working in a small uh, group in a fairly small community uh, because I know that the way from reading your book, the Mosopoi, they, they very much pitch in. They all help each other. They all, if a house needs building, they all join in when the labour yes, is needed. Right, and, right. You know, and so and that kind of community functions well in a small group, but then, then it's difficult when it spreads and, and the population grows. I don't know whether it's a function of size rather than if society accepts these arrangements, then it goes on. You know mm. what I mean? I mean, it's like we accept uh, the secondary place of the woman in our patriarchal society. Oh, I didn't mean, so much, the, I didn't mean so much the matriarchal aspect of it. Sorry, oh, I meant okay. more the kind of like pitching in and helping each other and the community being strong and there being acceptance of yeah, each other. Yeah, I think this is old world and old agrarian mm. world practices, you know. So, yeah, they group together. But that's also breaking down because, you know, modernity has come in, tourism has come in and 
maybe they're not as helpful today as even 10 years or 20 years or 100 years ago. Now, you lived with them for a while. I mean, certainly you, you kind of became accepted I became by part them. of the community, I would say. I mean, I, I know I'm a foreigner. They know I'm a foreigner, but I'm a very fr- friendly foreigner. Mm. And I'm part of their community in many things, like the Goddess Festival, you know, which I now sponsor, actually. So they thank me every year wow. for doing that good deed. So you're kind of a demigoddess. Well. <laughs> <laughs> a sponsor goddess. A sponsor um, goddess, yeah. did, How was it for you? I know you, you, you paid to have a small house built for yourself. Mm-hmm. Not, small by maybe your standards, but not small by their standards, certainly. It sounded like a large house in their, in their village. It was two floors and it was... Uh, yeah. Uh, although on a small plot of land. How was it that first morning when you woke up there and realised you, you were there? Oh, I thought I was in heaven, really. I mean, pristine blue sky, a mountain staring down at me, the goddess herself, uh, a lake in front of me, you know, clean air, fresh chicken eggs from the barn, perfect. And and yet you didn't stay. You you hopped back and forth back to your well, home in Singapore you know, on there. Uh, the visa problems, you know, I mean, I can only go in each time for a couple of months. Oh, I see, so you had to leave. Yeah, mm. I mean, and then that's why I go back... F- and forth, back and forth. I go home to Singapore and I go back again next month or something, you know. Would you have been capable, if you'd wanted to, to have left behind the aspects of your modern life and fully embrace the village Tough life? Tough question. I think I need the city once in a while, but I don't need it all the time. And I certainly don't need it six months of the year. So maybe a couple of months, you know. And the society there, how would we describe the society? Certainly when you first scanned it, it's not, it's not a Buddhist society, although I believe aspects of Buddhism are now creeping in. It's more of a paganistic society, is that correct? Yeah, I think it's a mixture of both, actually, and they've managed to deal with that mixture very well, you know. So in all the big uh, events in their lives, there's always the paganism part and the Tibetan Buddhist part. So it's, it's, they've accepted both, and both religious authorities, you can call them that, also accept the coexistence of the two. I, I like it. I, I think it's an interesting mix. I mean, the thing that struck me as so amazing is the fact that this such a different form of society, such a different hierarchy, can exist in a country which, as you pointed out, is one of the most extreme patriarchal societies. I think they were just cut off, they were remote, and nobody heard of them, you know what I mean? And they continued their old ways without any interference from the outside. I think that's how they managed to preserve it. And now when we come to the 21st century, when they are not cut off, things are changing rapidly. And, and you know. for the worse, in your opinion? Yes, in my opinion, I think they are changing for the worse. I wish they could remain pristinely matriarchal and pristinely matrilineal because it's, it's, it's a nice way, especially for a woman. I mean... You know, having spent so many years there, I am so comfortable in that setting as a woman because I'm accepted. I'm accepted accepted for who I am. And nobody challenges me, like, having overstepped any boundary and people listen. Well, that's what I can say. I imagine having having your voice heard and having your opinion valued is something which you you wouldn't have to fight for there. You never have to fight. Mm. I've never felt at any moment that I have to assert something or fight a battle or anything. It's the most comfortable place I think I've been to, I've lived in as a woman.
So perhaps the lessons that one could learn from the Mossua tribe is that the, we could ensure, and, and obviously some progress I think is clearly being made, and it's, it's difficult and perhaps ridiculous for me as a man to be saying that, but at the same time it seems to me from uh, what my wife and my daughters tell me is that you know that their voices are being heard a little more and they are but they are still pushing back against what is essentially a patriarchal society but changes maybe are taking force here i can't see that we would ever be able to leap to a matrilineal society i agree i uh, agree on that which is a shame speaking yeah. on behalf of all the many night visitors that's a shame <laughs> i can't help but think <laughs> you know that we're being deprived well the women also have a jolly good time, I'm too. sure they yeah. do. Yeah, that's yeah. why I'm surprised it hasn't caught on. I, I know, I why know. Hong, we need to spread the word. <laughs> Were you concerned, though, that in writing the book, uh, that you would hasten this change, which you see as probably negative, that the fact that you are writing about this and people are going to say, well, I want to go there, I want to see this, I want to experience this now, and, of course, visitors do bring change, even if only well, the economic influence they have. I, I wouldn't be the catalyst for more visitors because they have so many visitors now. And they are already changing. And I've seen changes, you know, so rapidly being made. So I won't be guilty of that. But I, I think it's actually they are on a route to almost a no return to the old way. You know, uh, the young people are changing particularly. Uh, they want to be with it. They want to be more like the outsiders. So it's it's not something you are, you and I can change at all. Mm. I think and maybe it's not for us to impose no, our will on them. Ab- absolutely, and then maybe in fifty years' time, some of them will look back and then regret that they hadn't done more to preserve their old ways. You know, I think that's how it will go. Actually, sadly. Well, it is a shame. But having yeah. said that, there is a wonderful record in your book, The Kingdom of Women, Life, Love and Death in China's Hidden Mountains by Chu Wai Hong. It's our Radio 2 Book Club of the Week. I enjoyed it very much, so thank you for writing it. And uh, please say hello to the various coaches. In particular, what was the name of the gentleman who built the house for you out there? Darcy. He sounds like he's quite a character. He is. Well, give him my best. I, if I ever, will. If ever I travel that way, I'll join the queue to get a selfie with him. <laughs> I'll just follow in his footsteps. Then, yeah. <laughs> Lovely to meet you. Thank you Thank so much you for coming Thank you so in. much, Jonathan. Take care. Uh-huh, honey. All right. My baby whispers in my ear. Baby, I keep him to myself. Mm, sweet nothing. Sweet nothing. Brenda Lee, Sweet Nothings. And it just occurred to me at the beginning of that song that when she starts that song, which I had forgotten, she begins it thus. She goes, uh-huh, honey. That is the sample that the legendary madman Kanye West uses at the beginning of Bound 2, the rather magnificent hip-hoppy thing that he did where he rides a motorbike unconvincingly in front of a green screen with Kim Kardashian. So if you can follow what I was trying to say in that link, then congratulations. There'll be more of the same coming up after the news here on Radio 2 because this is BBC Radio 2. That was the remarkable sound of Phil Oakey with Giorgio Moroder there. That was uh, Electric Dreams from the movie of the same name, I believe, which wasn't a terrific film but had some great tracks in it. Uh, And speaking of film music, this is from one of my favourite movies of all time by one of my favourite performers of all time. This is You Got a Friend in Me from the great Randy Newman. 
Alison Moye will be joining me next on Radio 2. Instantly recognisable, the beautiful voice of Alison Moye from way back when. When was that from, Is This Love? Oh, my God. Do you know, I can't even remember. About 70 the, years ago, 65, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was uh, Second World War, I'm sure. Yeah, it was all that. Exactly. 87, that's when it was. 87. But see, that shouldn't be a long time ago. And well, yet it is. Well, it's barking. It's like when you meet people that are born in like two, you know, like uh, in the millennium and they're sort of like adults now, you know. know. It's like, what's that all about? It's depressing. Uh, but it's, uh, it's the way the world turns. Yeah. Um, so you're back, you're back with a, a new album. Or do you, do you even think of it as an album now? Is it a new batch of songs? Cause no, you... it's an album, right. a kind of an album in the, in the old sense that, you know, of the word. It's not sort of like just a stream of singles. It's right. like, a, you know, a proper collection. And, and is there a theme to them, or is there a connection between the songs? Uh, yeah, it's the, the connection is it's actually uh, quite poetic, you know, and um, and it's more observational. I think when you're younger, you like you write a lot of songs about you know the eye, you know, and this is the, the nice thing about being middle aged is the invisibility that goes along with it, where you get to watch people rather than being observed. So this is more you're you looking at the world today, you looking at the yeah, world or and... at people, or you know, streets, or even at the ground, you know. And what do you find? What is it that intrigues you? What is it that excites you out there in the world that you want to write about? Uh, I, I don't think I get particularly excited by anything. It's just, you know, it's, 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 it's just literally observation. It's just yeah. sort of like, you know, But what catches you eye then? Words. What is it that you see? So there's a moment, there's a glance, there's a, just something Well, out like, ordinary. for example, there's one line in, in one of the songs that talks about uh, um, Dove Grey Gum Constellation. It's the idea of when you're in Brighton and you're looking down at the floor and just like everywhere there's just chewing gum. Yeah. You know, and you can imagine <laughs> nice if you're term. sort of like, you've just got your head down to the ground, you, you remember your route just by looking at these these marks on the pavement. And now this uh, this uh, this album marks a departure in that you're working with your daughter on it. Well, she's 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 done. Uh, you know, she's sung BVs well, on one song for that's you. That's working. Know? Come on, that's, that's she's, working. She's, well, I suppose so. Yeah, but I mean, she's involved. Well, it's it's great because like it's you know, it's not a collaboration. I understand. It's not that. a collaboration. Yeah. No, yeah. It's, it's it's just sort of like yeah, take your girl to work day, and she's got a lovely voice and the just kind of voice that I needed for that particular song. How old is she now? 20. Wow, so, and she wants to be a singer? She wants to make this her career? Well, she, she uh, you know, she sells kind of musical instruments. She plays in punk bands. Uh, she, she writes kind of magazines. She, she just, you know, no, I don't think she particularly wants to be uh, in the front line, no. But she's enjoying doing this. She did this because it's you. It's you asked. Well, she just, she's got a nice voice and asked her to do it, yeah. That's a nice thing, I mean, though. she plays drums and she plays bass, so she's not really, a, a, you know... A, she's not a singer, per se. Yeah. Uh, but you have always been a singer, haven't you? Yeah. You've always been front and centre there. Yeah. Uh, and um, it's a weird thing because... I guess ageing, uh, as we all do, initially there's that burst of novelty. You're a new face. Yeah. Then you've been around a while and you've had hits of success. Then there's that period always when it's difficult, I think, because oh, yeah. getting there is easy, as they say. Well, Staying there it, is it hard. It was for me. I mean, I really thought having a hit, all you had to do was give your song to a plugger and then everybody bought it because that was my that's, experience. That's you how know? it happened, yeah, of course. Yeah, but I mean, in terms of ageing, I think in some ways that's kind of been easier for me because it's not like I was ever a babe, do you know what I mean? And so, like, no one ever expected... You weren't selling your youth and your obvious sexuality. No, no, no. absolutely that. And... Um, uh, 
but you know I, I think I've got something about me you know yeah. and, and tenacity is one of those kind of things and I've never done music just, just because I wanted to be famous I've done it because it's my vocation and, and eventually people catch up with that as you know as you get older with every art your, your craft becomes better honed and I'm better now than I was when I did this Is This Love it's just that Is This Love will be heard and maybe some of my new material won't be That's but I'm alright I'm zen about that What about the from the early stuff uh, the stuff which people instantly recognise yours which are the tracks that you can listen to and enjoy and which are the ones that drive you a bit crazy if any I never do Invisible. I can't do Invisible uh, for two reasons. As I've gotten older, I've become more uh, uh, attached to my uh, English accent and 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 uh, English words. And I, and there's also this kind of like this vulnerability in that song, which is this desperate pleading. You want to go with some man, kick him into touch, stop yeah. whining. So you couldn't inhabit that mental space again. No, I can't. Oh, no, no, not at all. That's interesting, isn't it? Uh, but at the time, were you ever irked by that when you first started performing, or were you? No, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a creature of sort of like the moment. I don't, I'm, I'm not a great collector. You know, when something's done, it's done. It's like people saying, "What's your favourite career memory?" I don't know. I can't remember. It was yesterday. It's, it's, it's literally like that. So there must have been a time where I thought that I, you know, I liked the song, and, and then quickly I stopped liking it. Yeah. And, and people get annoyed with you when you say that. But your relationship with music is your own. You know, I wouldn't judge anybody else for liking something that I don't. You know, it's their business. It's not mine. Outside of your music. Then what are the songs that stay with you from other performers? Not necessarily from that period, but just what, what, what's the music that you return to when when you need music in your life? I don't, and that's the bizarre thing with me. You know, when I sit there and look at, you know, it's like a, you know, I write po- poetry. I don't read books. I, I I make music. I don't listen to it. I I, I do figurative sculpture I don't know any artist it's like it's never been about that for me I've always kind of been a little bit on my own and um, I'm a bit of an idiot savant you know I obviously take things in through my skin and, and not through study so know. do you, so you like being on your own presumably no, I, I love I love company. It's just that that's that creativity for me is not about looking what someone else is doing, you know. Mm. And I think you know you'll you'll hear this on this next album. I, I know with that the the lead track that I've put out it's, it's a, an acoustic one, but the rest of the album is is electronic. But it's it's like all of my melodies are taken from goodness knows where, but certainly not from the charts. I don't I, you know I don't know what's played in the charts. I think I'm more informed by nursery rhymes because that's the last time I ever really got involved with words. How how different is it for you now writing the lyrics and the music as well as a to when you've collaborated with other musicians in the past? Well, I've never really collaborated. Even when I was in Yazoo and I wrote uh, Nobody's Diary, you know, and, and Winter Kills, No to Boy, they were things I did on my own that I brought to the table, and that's the way I started. And so then now. he would set the music to it? Well, uh, well I, I'd written the calls to it, so he'd set the music to it, yeah. But you'd already written the structure then? Yeah, I'd already written oh, yeah, yeah. I didn't realise that. Yeah. And, and often the way that I work now is that if somebody gives me a track that, that appeals to me, I like it, I'll put, uh, I'll put my tape recorder straight into play without listening to it. Mm. And then uh, the first thing that comes into my head is I improvise, and then I, that's how I write. Wow, so it's as immediate as that? It's as immediate as that. You and know, I might all... do it five or six times and then listen back and see what's, what's caught me, but I, I don't like to listen to the track before, uh, you know, before I've, I, I've put it into record. Wow. OK, well, let's listen to the new song now. This is, uh, now, what's this collection called? The new collection is it's called... It's called Other. And so this is, the, this is not a single so much as the, the lead track, but, um, but it gives you an idea of, uh, of how I'm working with words, really. Uh, so, and this gives you that idea, but the rest of the stuff is more electronic. It's, it's electronic, it's right. darker, yeah. Okay. OK, this is Other, Alison Moyer. I don't know precisely which day Coloured me other Perchance it may have been a slow bleed So I cut out whichever shape I need I don't sue for rescue I'm as free as I have Quite beautiful, quite quite beautiful. You must, uh, it must be a nice 
experience hearing that back. It's done, it's finished, and you, and you know people are appreciating it now. Yeah, but the the nicest thing is 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 when you've done something that's regardless whether people appreciate it or not that you feel all right about it. You know, you really are. You really are. Uh, you're you are a self-contained. You are the island. You are uh, yourself. Yeah. You're not looking outside for approval. No. There's no. There's not a hint of neediness no. about. Oh, well, that's your... not to say that I've ever felt that. You know, and that's the whole kind of thing about being other. When you're younger and you are the, as I've always been. You know, there's that feeling of loss of estrangement. And actually, when you get older, it's it's it's, it's just a, a, the recognition. And it's the, 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 I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't need it. You don't need it. You don't no. crave it. You don't need it. You don't no. seek it out. Which doesn't mean to say I don't like it. Yeah. I, you know, of course I love it when someone likes what I've done. Are but... you comfortable with that? When someone offers you a compliment, can you absorb that and and stay with that moment comfortably? or do you, does that make you uneasy? Yeah, as long as I, I feel they're discerning. You know, when there's, you know, when they're loving things that you know are really bad, it's, it's kind of hard to do that. But Yeah. Although, of course, it's subjective. No, no, I, I know when I'm bad. <laughs> <laughs> when she was bad, she was very, very bad. Yeah, I was very, very when bad. When she was good, she sold records. <laughs> <laughs> no, when I was good, I didn't sell records, sadly. <laughs> uh, and so uh, you, you've avoided, it seems to me, maybe I'm wrong here, but you've avoided allowing yourself being lumped together with... Uh, contemporaries of yours who now go on those kind of I think it's called Here and Now the big tour they yeah, do yeah. The, yeah, that's a, I guess a choice of yours not. well because be... when I play live I, I genuinely engage I, I love the experience I love the exchange with an audience and I think I, I can't do that if, if I'm being disingenuous if I'm you know if I'm just sort of like sending it home you know. so playing the old hits and just going out there and being essentially almost a tribute act to yeah, yourself exactly I can't do that that doesn't mean to say there's some of those I mean I play some Yazo I play some of my early hits but they, they've, they've been kind of worked into a way that I can engage with them now you know yeah. I wouldn't ever just go out and do a, a tribute of myself uh, I'm not going to ask you I know you don't have favourite memories from a certain period and all that but, but looking back at that period when you were first enjoying and being celebrated for your talent and, and became famous it, it was such a different time, wasn't it? Going it was on... amazing. Well, the great. I mean, now you know when your records, go, you know where it's going. You know it's predicted to go, and you've got an idea when it's going to chart. In those days, you'd put a record out, and you, you'd have to sit down and listen to the countdown with everybody else to find out if your record. So you didn't had have chart. any heads up. You had no idea whatsoever. Wow. So I remember vividly being at home at my mum and dad's house, and you'd be listening to the countdown, and they'd do like top forty, and think, well, "Have I gone up? Have I gone down? Have I come in, gone in?" That was really, really exciting and nerve wracking as well. Well, nerve wracking, yeah, because it's it's you know my my. Uh, Achievements always outdid my ambition. You know, I wanted to be famous, but to me, being famous was being, you know, semi-professional, getting a headline at Dingwalls. You know, having <laughs> five people on the tube station might recognise you out of a yeah. thousand. You know, yeah. but um, you know, and and, and I, I outdid that, which was was quite shocking. But it was quite important what you did in a way, uh, and I don't know how deliberate this was, but at the same time, because you were not, and we've just pointed this out, you didn't conform to the normal kind of what was seen as the industry standards for a woman as a lead performer back yeah, then. Yeah. You know, you weren't the same shape, you weren't no, no. showing the same amount of skin, you weren't. Yeah. Sexual in that more obvious way, and so there was an element by which you were, I think, very much a trailblazer. You were very much a, a role model for others, and that yeah. must have taken a certain amount of toughness on your part, I thought, to to be able to stand there and be yourself. Yeah, but you know, I, I was always odd from being a small child, so that had come on quite young. That kind of defence, you know, and it got to the point. I, I remember when people, I mean, I remember a journalist saying to me, "Do you not feel ashamed going on stage looking the way you do?" Wow. I'd have all this kind of stuff, and so what you, I actually did is I kind of, I more uglified myself. I thought, okay, okay if you're gonna, you know, you're gonna find that difficult to deal with. I'm going to make it even harder for you to do with it. Wow, that's incredible. And what a great toughness you had. Yeah. You know, I still love listening to you. I'm really looking forward to getting 
Uh, I can't help but feel a little bit slighted that they didn't send me the album in advance of you coming in, frankly. So, uh, <laughs> well, do you know, we haven't got it yet. I wanted to listen to it. I wanted to be immersed and I wanted to be able to say to you, I like this and, uh, and avoid saying I like something I didn't like. But uh, that didn't happen. <laughs> However, I did like the track you just played for us, Other. Alison's uh, collection of songs. It's uh, an album, I suppose. It's called Other. When is it available for people? Uh, 16th to get? of June. 16th of June. So it's a way off. And Other you can get yeah. now, can you? The, the uh, I believe so, yeah. Okay, Other you can get now. Alison, lovely to see you again. Lovely to see you. Take Thank care. you. Bye bye. Well, I'm driving down the dusty road in a dirty Cadillac. I light another cigarette dressed head to toe in black. And when you see me screaming down. Well, if you've ever wondered what I want here played at my funeral, well, that's it. There you go, Dancing Queen. What a go- I can't begin to say how much I love that song. Uh, I never met uh, the, the women from that, but I've never met Ag- Anna or Agnesia. Uh, I've met Benny and Bjorn, of course. Can you imagine if they reformed? That would be the very definition of an unseemly rush for tickets, wouldn't it? Uh, but a friend of mine worked with them years ago. He's no longer with us. His name was Michael Hurley. He was a big BBC producer. Um, dubious behaviour at times, but a lovely man. And he, uh, he used to produce Summertime Special and all those kind of weird shows. And he was doing an ABBA special once. He told me an ABBA story. I said, Come, what, what was it like working with ABBA? And he said part of what they were doing was they, they were filming in Europe and they were filming in a hot air balloon. So he's in a hot air balloon with ABBA. Okay, he's filming ABBA in a hot air balloon. And uh, I think they were somewhere near Geneva. And the hot air balloon starts leaking or losing height for some reason. So he's thinking, OK, I don't want to be the man responsible for killing off ABBA. So they're going to go in for an emergency landing. They're going to crash land. He's crash landing in a hot air balloon with ABBA. He swore this story was true, and I've got no reason to doubt him. And so they see a big patch of land, a nice, uh, well-manicured patch, and that'll do, we'll go down there. So they, they go down to land, and, of course, uh, they all climb out there. They land safely. They climb out of the basket. Uh, it was a big, big balloon, but I think technically it's called a basket. They climb out of the basket, and the owner of the house is running towards them uh, to see what's up. Who's landed a hot air balloon uh, uninvited in my back garden? And this is where the story gets really good. It was David Niven's back garden. <laughs> <laughs> so he crash-landed in a hot air balloon with ABBA and David Niven came out to make them all a cup of tea. Now, if that isn't the very epitome of a great showbiz story, I don't know what is. I'll be talking to Dominic Gray about a huge project in Hull called uh, Opera North after this from Sister Nancy. That's the uh, No, you're not listening to Six Music. This is Radio 2, and that was Sister Nancy. Okay, um, I'm joined in the studio by Dominic Gray. Uh, he's going to tell me all about. The Height of the Weeds, and this is an exciting sound installation project on Humber Bridge. And has this opened already, Dominic? No, it opens on the 1st of April and goes right through to the 30th, so and it's a, a month-long experience. So what, what do people get to experience? How, how, where does it begin? What do you go through? And how does it end? OK, so you've got timed walks. There are three or four timed walks a day, depending on the day. Uh, you roll up at the Visitor Information Centre at the Humber Bridge. 
uh, you get uh, given a set of headphones and a bit like a, if you go around a museum or a gallery, it's a kind of little thing that you hang around your neck right. and your headphones are plugged into this. And this little thing around your neck, like a little iPod, I guess, is holds the music. And then you walk across the bridge. And as you're walking, there are little triggers built into the bridge that change the music. So, so regardless of the pace you walk at, you yep. will get a similar experience you because will. it's uh, as you arrive at a geographical location exactly on the Humber right. Bridge, then it changes. It, it triggers a next chapter in the in the musical experience. And what is the what is the kind of um, uh, the thought behind it? What is the experience that you're meant to get out of it? Okay, well, it's a, uh, I guess you'd call it kind of landscape art, really, because what what we what we really wanted to do was to find a way to experience the Humber Bridge um, in, a, in a way that made you uh, feel that this is something you'd never done before or it changed your attitude to the bridge, it changed your attitude to the landscape around it. So the music is really responsive to the view that you have while you're walking. So what is the preconception that you feel people have about Hull, about the Humber Bridge, and, ha- and how then is that addressed and changed by this experience? Well, most people, I think, look at the Humber Bridge as being a route to get from uh, the East Riding of Yorkshire into Lincolnshire. It's for, you know, if, you, if you go up there, the, the traffic is pounding all the time uh, with uh, you know, transport going, going back and forth. Um, and I think people don't really spend the time thinking of it as an iconic object in its own right, a piece of you know, extraordinary architecture. Incredible it's engineering. The, as well, it's, yeah. the, it's the biggest single-span bridge uh, in the world that you can walk across. Show off. I know. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, so the idea is that it will, yeah, it'll just change your perception of the bridge. It'll change your perception of what that bridge is for. It's kind of, you know, it's, it's very much a kind of landmark of home, if you like. You know, if you think of Hull, a lot of people say, oh, yeah, that's the Humber Bridge. So it's kind of, it, it, it stands for stability and stuff. But it's a bridge. It's also pointing to travel, to journey. And you've got the Humber underneath you, which connects Hull to the whole of the North Sea, and to how much, Scandinavia. How much can you see of the, uh, when you're on the bridge, when yeah. you're walking across, I've driven over the Humber Bridge you, many, many years ago, yeah. but I haven't walked over it. No. Uh, so that would be a very different. So I'm, presu- yeah. I'm presuming there's a walkway and it's safe. Yeah, you're not, yeah, yeah. You're not yeah, guarding yeah. him in and out of traffic. No, no, no. It's not. It's not interactive in that way. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and what do you see? I guess because there's incredible landscape around there. Of yeah. course, it's beautiful. So yeah. can you see much of that? And is that does that trigger things in the in the soundscape that you're experiencing? Yeah. yeah. So depending on where you are, that's that's when the next trigger will come. Um, depending on what point of the bridge you're at. I mean, the Humber itself is extraordinary. It's quite frightening actually because it is so monstrous. Yeah, it's a it's huge, huge and powerful river. Isn't it? Huge. Mm. Yeah. Um, so, so you've got that, and then, as you say, you've got the landscape on the sides, and you've got these reed beds that you can see because it's a very shallow river, the the, the Humber. So you can see these reed beds, and these these last quite a long time while you're going there, and when, when you get into the other side as well. Uh, yeah, it feels like you're looking out into, I don't know, into the end of the world. It feels like that's where you know that's where the, the water kind of pours off the end, like they used to do in that flat earth stuff. And and who's composed the the soundscape? Okay, so we've got three composers who've worked collectively on it. This is uh, Arve Henriksen. Uh, Ivan Darset and Jan Bang, who are all Norwegian composers, musicians. They, they, they you know, they're, they're musicians really, jazz oriented, and they've written the piece both for themselves to play, but also for the orchestra of Opera North and the chorus of Opera North. So that's, you know, eighty players in our orchestra, thirty six in the chorus. So you get this big, big. Big so source of sound. Big sound. Yeah. And uh, in Norway, I believe there are there's a similar soundscape, or not necessarily the same, but it's certainly a similar experience, perhaps at the airport, isn't there? 
Oh, I don't know about that. I believe that's, there is. That's, that's what I've been reading here. Norway right. Airport have sound showers. Wow. So I guess they well, are, to an extent, leading the way. Why the why is there the link between the Norwegians and the good people of Hull on this project? Well, you know, Hull is really looking, in, in being city of culture for the whole of the year 2017, one of the things it's it's trying to do is to look at its kind of its relationship to Northern Europe and to Scandinavia, because, of course, you had all the shipping, whaling, in its history, the history of Hull is very, very connected with that part of Northern Europe and uh, Scandinavia, Iceland, Norway. So I think they're trying to reclaim that a little bit with this uh, with this year. They've got a lot of projects which are bringing bringing that together. We didn't know this when we. Uh, so it's a happy coincidence. When when we were approached and asked if we'd make a piece of music for the Humber Bridge, we straight away thought of Arve uh, Henriksen, who's a jazz trumpeter that we've worked with a lot at Opera yeah. North, and he just you know felt right. He'd create the right kind of sound. So, uh, yeah, so coincidentally, we all came together with the same thought. Do trolls figure in this at all? They don't. But that's a shame. I think you've I'm missed sorry. the trick there. Oh. <laughs> have, you not been, have you been to Norway, Epcot? No. Well, OK, when you go to Epcot, which is the great yeah. Disney uh, experimental prototype community yeah. of tomorrow, uh, and there's a Norwegian ride sponsored by the Norwegian Tourist Board, I believe, and, mm. they, and they, they speak of trolls quite a lot in there. Yeah. And you're on a big bridge, and where yeah, the trolls yeah, live. <laughs> I, next time, call me, will you? Call me early. <laughs> a kind of a, a hull troll would have been... Uh, could like, have been an internet yeah. troll. Yeah, yeah. No, very good. <laughs> uh, and you've presumably... Uh, I know it's not open yet, but you've you've done the walk already. You yeah, must yeah, have I've experienced done it. Yeah. it. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, is yeah. there much fine-tuning that takes place when yeah, you're actually... Yeah, there's a lot. Yeah, the last two weeks, really, has been about fine-tuning yeah, uh, yeah they, uh, it's just making sure that everything happens in the in the right place and technically it's you know even though it's it's not it's not particularly high-tech but because it's open air mm. uh, you know you're open to the elements and the elements you really do get a lot of elements up there on, on that Humber Bridge yeah. and it's an, it's an emotional experience for you it probably is because of course you're so involved in it so yeah. to actually see it come to fruition yeah. must in itself have had some impact but is it something where you will be moved are they changing moods as you as you traverse this great structure yeah no there's a lot it's definitely got a kind of narrative arc you, you know when you're in the middle you know when you're getting to the end the music is telling you where you are and yet it is mood it is you know the music is very cinematic in, in a lot of ways it reminds me uh, a little bit of the kind of um, Aaron Copeland or, or early western you know Elmer Bernstein kind of it's got a real feeling of of uh, yeah of landscape and space and drama uh, potential or you know uh, all through it so yeah it's definitely got an, it's definitely an emotional journey and, you, and there are poems as well so we've got um Barry Rutter and Maureen Lippman uh, uh, oh. speak these poems. Incredible. Well, Barry as, came on the show here, yeah, as, yeah. as has Maureen, of course, but yeah. Barry is an incredible voice for that region. So, yeah. I mean, he uh, that must be quite powerful, I would have yeah, thought. Yeah, yeah. Well, they're both old, I don't know what the word is, they're, all, they're both ex-Hull. Old Hullians? 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 <laughs> Hullonians? Hullians sounds better. It sounds yeah. like Hellion, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, so, I, well, I've been meaning to make a pilgrimage to you for a while, because I'm a huge... Uh, um, Jake Thackeray fan, right? And I think, it's a, I think that's a North Riding of Yorkshire, really, the, of the swales that he. Uh, yeah, from, I, I think, think it is. I think that's um, right. So I could combine the two. Yeah, a little pilgrimage. Any Thackeray involved on the bridge? No, nope, no Thackeray. Once again, call me. Yeah. Call me next. <laughs> Trolls and Thackeray, <laughs> as requested. Uh, but it sounds incredible. You must be very pleased with it. What kind of? Yeah. Uh, do you have an estimate as the number of people you think will visit will experience it? How well, many... it's sold out. I mean, all the tickets available sold out. Which wow. we're, tr- we're trying to find some more to, to make available. How many can the bridge hold at any one time? Well, can... the bridge can hold loads because it's, you know, it's, a, it's a it's a big bridge but we're, we're, in order to have a an experience that's an immersive experience so you don't feel that you're part of a kind of coach load of yeah, people all yeah. doing it together we've limited it to 40 uh 40 tickets available for each crossing right. um so we're doing as say either three crossings or four crossings a day so it ends up being about four and a half thousand people will 
will do it. So not huge then, really. Not a huge number of people for the amount of work that's gone into it. Yeah, well, you know, we might extend it. We're, we're, gonna, we're, we're, in, we're in discussion about... Uh, whether we can keep it keep it there for a bit longer. Well, I almost feel bad about us talking about it. We had such kind of excitement, and now people can't actually get a ticket. I don't know what to say about that. Well, I, you know, we, we, I think we, the we, only <laughs> answer is let's extend it. Let's get on the phone now. Yeah. Tell them to add a troll, add a factory, uh, yeah, and yeah, extend yeah. it. Yeah. Okay. All right, we'll do that. We have a deal? Yeah. All right, Dominic, thank you so much. No, Dominic no Gray worries. from Opera North there. The big project in Hull, if you're lucky enough to have a ticket already, then I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. If not, keep looking in the newspapers and look online because hopefully they'll extend it and allow a few more people to cross the Humber Bridge while listening to this incredible experience. Uh, Dominic, great to have you here. Thanks for coming in. Cheers. The swans bend their necks backward to see God. They know the magnetism of the blue space, but the prayers say God in heaven. In the black space, only black swans see him, pulled between stars and asteroids, meteors and satellites. A little bit of Katy Perry there, just to remind you that you are indeed listening to Radio 2. OK, thanks to all my guests tonight, the uh, terrific, talented writer-director Ben Wheatley, Alison Moyer, Chu Wai Hong and Dominic Gray, who joined us from Opera North Project, uh, which sounds very exciting indeed. You've been listening to the Radio 2 Art Show with me, Jonathan Ross. It was produced by Anna Richards. We had Gary Newman, not that one, on the desk and lots of help from Craig. We have time for one more, so uh, we're going to go way back. This is, this is just an incredible sound. Just stop... This is one of those tracks that you hear a lot, you might hear quite a lot, and I think we take it for granted. You know, this is stuff that sometimes it becomes almost like background music, but just listen to just how incredible this is. Frankie Valley, The Four Seasons, Ragdoll. Ooh. 